You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. History Podcast. Probably the most prominent figure in the story of New England during the 1680s was Governor Edmund Andros. He was appointed to serve as the first governor of New York upon England's acquisition of the territory from the Dutch. It's a bit surprising, to me at least, that he was appointed by the Duke of York, James Stuart. Governor Andros was a staunch Anglican, while James unofficially at the time, was not. However, this was an excellent compromise. New England was still very Puritan. We're creeping up on the Salem witch trials here. Appointing someone who shared James' beliefs would have resulted in, well, probably in a dead governor floating in the harbor. On the other hand, an avid Anglican could curb some of the more radical Puritan ideas in the colonies. Andros, who was doing a good job in James' eyes, was given full gubernatorial control of the northern and middle colonies, and it was called the Dominion of New England. The colony of New York, which at the time included New Jersey and parts of Delaware, was combined with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, including Maine and Connecticut. Add to that New Hampshire, Plymouth, and Rhode Island, and you have what was the Consolidated Dominion of New England, all under Governor Edmund Andros. Needless to say, this reconfiguration rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Rhode Island and New Hampshire were specifically created to avoid the influence of Massachusetts. You know, it's not strong enough to say that this rubbed people the wrong way. The people of New England hated Edmund Andros. He enforced the Navigation Acts with an iron hand. His rule was labeled authoritarian. The reign of Edmund Andros very nearly led to an American Revolution almost 100 years early. But then came November 1688, the Glorious Revolution. 
James II was out, William III was in. And in the chaos that follows any transfer of power in the early modern world, the people of America saw their opportunity to rise up. This is episode 167, A Limping Privateer. In January 1689, Governor Edmund Andros received a letter from none other than King James. Andros was in the middle of military preparations for a conflict that was looming over New England, a conflict with the French and their Indian allies to the north. It was a serious concern. In that letter, though, James told Governor Andros to put all of that on the back burner. Right now, the real concern was the Dutch naval buildup. It was clear that the Dutch were preparing for a fight, probably something like the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, and James expected the Dutch to strike at New York in a bid to reclaim their lost territory. To be fair to James, that is what conventional military wisdom and most of his advisors said would happen. It wasn't what happened, though, obviously. When Governor Andros received that letter in January 1689, James was no longer king. William was already in control of England. But Andros had no way to know that. He prepared for war. He intended to fight a defensive campaign, to repulse any outside invaders that should test his borders, be they Dutch or French or Indian. What he did not expect was that the attack would come from within. About a month after receiving that letter from the king, a Royal Navy ship arrived in port. It was bearing news that King James had been deposed and was currently living in exile. That ship carried orders as well, and they proved to be big. Immediately following the revolution, William saw to an overhaul of the military. We discussed some of that last time in Marlborough's upgrade to flintlock muskets. But the colonial and naval military overhaul was more difficult. The distance was a problem, as well as the independent minds of many of the colonials. Royal Navy agents who had been appointed by William, staunch Williamites all, were in for quite a job in this reorganization. The Royal Navy had largely been built by three men, Sir Anthony Dean, a maritime architect, Samuel Pepys, and the former Lord High Admiral James II. Now, I have neglected talking much about Samuel Pepys on this show, and that's something I'll have to amend one day. His diary alone is the primary source for the lion's share of English politics throughout this era. His naval reforms built the Royal Navy. The administrators sent to reform the Navy wanted to keep those reforms in place. What they didn't want were the officers that were deemed too loyal to King James. Andros, despite having been appointed by King James, found himself less and less in line with the king's politics. By this point, he was almost an open opponent of the king's. He was happy to help these Royal Navy agents in their quest. On all of the ships in the New England Armada, every officer was reviewed and, if deemed necessary, replaced. And this wasn't just New England, it was happening everywhere, from Bermuda to Jamaica to India. These reforms shook the Royal Navy, 
and it took a minute for the hangover to wear off. But when they came out the other side, the Navy was younger and hungrier and more willing to adopt some of the wild naval tactics that would carry the British Empire all the way through the Age of Sail. One of the casualties of this purge was Captain Thomas Pound. Pound was a good kingsman, as we may have mentioned. His politics were open, he wore them on his sleeve, and due to that he was removed from command as captain which might seem kind of strange. After all, Governor Andros oversaw many of the events we talked about when we introduced Thomas Pound. When the Sally Rose was scuttled in a firefight with George Peterson, pirate, it was Governor Andros that levied the tax to pay for Pound's new ship, the Mary. He supported Thomas Pound. But the tide at this point had turned. William was king. He wanted new blood in the Navy, and the governor wasn't going to try to fight that. Captain Pound was replaced as Captain of the Mary by John George. Now, Pound wasn't discharged from service. The Navy wasn't foolish enough to fire experienced Captain. Instead, Captain Pound, well, former Captain Pound, and all of the others like him were beached. They were removed from command and left to rest on their laurels. All this while King William III embarked on the greatest war of a generation. It's a sound policy, removing commanders with questionable loyalty at the outbreak of war. You don't want the Navy to mutiny and defect to the enemy in wartime. But also you don't want to lose the capability to activate those experienced commanders should the need arise. So you continue to pay them a stipend, obviously, enough to live on. Otherwise, they'll very likely go rogue and turn pirate. Still, Thomas Pound and the men like him were left shorebound, with nothing to do but drink away their idleness and their resentment. In the meantime, Governor Andros was busy putting out fires. It's to be expected in the wake of any major political upheavals. In this case, the biggest fire was a mutiny led by the militia garrison in the province of Maine. This mutiny wasn't political, though not exactly. It was much more personal. It was a redress of grievances. Andros, in his war preparations, mandated that the militia train and drill in a grueling schedule. They were commanded in these drills by army regulars. But remember, these militiamen were farmers. They were fishermen. They had responsibilities outside the militia, but whenever they complained, they received military discipline. We're talking stockades and beatings, everything you imagine when you think about early modern military discipline. When I call Andros authoritarian, that's what I'm talking about. The governor spent about two months in Maine, trying to collar the mutineers without, you know, just opening fire on them. But he had to leave the Maine garrison in March of 1689 when he heard that events in Boston were growing dangerous. It had been quite some time since Andros had been to Boston, beyond just passing through. His residence was in New York, along with his family. 
which was a change of pace for Boston, not being the most prominent capital in the region. Boston was, as historians are so fond of labeling things, a powder keg. Andros and his men arrived at Boston on the 16th of April, 1689. He and his men made camp at Fort Mary, a large defensible fortification. While there, Andros penned a couple of letters. In one of those, he wrote to his top military commander, still in Maine, quote, There was a general buzzing among the people of Boston, great with expectation of their old charter. End quote. That's to say that the people of Boston were advocating for their pre-Dominion government of Massachusetts. The people there in Boston believed that the governor was involved in what they called a popish plot. At least that's the justification they would later give. And it could be true. Governor Andros might have been a secret Jacobite. I don't believe that, but it is possible. Still, the people of Boston, who by and large supported the revolution of William III, used it as a rallying cry against Governor Edmund Andros. And even if it wasn't true, even if Andros was not a Jacobite, it was still a smart move to talk about this popish plot. It gave the people who were about to engage in rebellion some legal recourse for the backlash that would likely follow. At 5 a.m. on 18th April, 1689, the people of Boston made their move. A militia force gathered across the river from Boston proper, and about half of them rode into the city. Their first move, as the sun was only just beginning to peek over the horizon, was to invade the homes of regimental drummers and confiscate their equipment. Now that might seem a bit odd, but think about every revolutionary war reenactment you've ever seen. They always have drummers at the fore. It was, it was important. It was the drummers, though, the militia drummers, that alerted the people of Boston that something was afoot. The people began poking their heads out to see what was amiss and realized that the rebellion was on. Men and women all throughout the city grabbed their guns and their torches and their pitchforks and joined the fight. The first man to be detained by the mob was the captain of the HMS Mary, John George. It just makes good tactical sense. Obviously, you want to arrest the guy that has two first names because you can't trust those people, if you could even call them people. Plus, the Mary was the only Royal Navy ship in port and it was Boston's probably third greatest military asset. It would also be easy to capture by arresting John George. His crew did not support Andros just like the rest of them. Now, I can't find any evidence that Thomas Pound was indeed involved in this uprising. It would be a surprise to me to find out that he wasn't on some level, but we don't know. I do like to imagine him, though, personally arresting Captain John George and offering up some witty quip. The rest of the day of the 18th of April was defined by a series of arrests of local officials. As the day wore on, Boston appeared to be more and more in their control. So the rebels raised an orange flag in the city square. This orange flag 
Well, it was to represent the Prince of Orange. This was a Williamite rebellion against Governor Andros. Another unit of militia, that half that was still on the other side of the river, rode their way into town and encamped outside the walls of Fort Mary at one of the exits. The first group, those who had been active in Boston all day, did the same at the only other exit to the fort. The people of Boston had Edmund Andros and all of his men trapped inside. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Come the morning of the 19th, the people were preparing to storm the barricades. And to his credit, Governor Andros raised the white flag and surrendered. He did so before any men could begin shooting and killing each other. Andros was detained. The people brought him before the restored governor of Massachusetts Bay and his high council. Those men decided to formally arrest Andros. The former governor was detained in a house overnight, and then taken to Fort Mary, which was now in the hands of the rebels. There he stayed for several weeks in the stocks, until, one night, his servant arrived and plied the guards with drink, until they passed out, which gave Edmund Andros the ability to escape. He made it all the way to Rhode Island, before being recaptured. I don't like Edmund Andros you got to feel for him here. He never had a chance. Everyone in New England hated him. Once he was recaptured, Andros was taken to Castle Island and detained there for several weeks more. There's a legend that he put on women's clothing to attempt an escape, but no real historical data backs that up. However, a few weeks later, a ship from England arrived in the harbor. That ship carried some really big news. First, Governor Andros was formally relieved of command. The current governing structure, all of the former pre-Andros governments, were adopted as long as they adhered to English law and paid their taxes. Andros was to be taken back to London. 
Once he arrived, though, an investigation was undertaken, and all charges against him were dropped. The Williamite government embraced Edmund Andros, and he would live a full and happy life. But that ship also carried word that James Stewart had landed in Ireland. He was at the head of a French army. King William was sailing for Ireland to counter this move. What's more, open warfare had broken out on the continent. Everyone was in need of ships and guns and men. Anyone who had patriotic Williamite leanings or seditious Jacobite leanings began to prepare for a voyage across the Atlantic to join sides with whoever they supported. Now Thomas Pound heard that news alongside everyone else in Boston, but his motivations for what comes next are nearly impossible to determine. There are a ton of different interpretations. Now I've been working from the analysis done by David F. Marley, which ascribes Jacobite motivations, at least a bitterness he felt towards the Williamites that removed him from power. But there are other interpretations. Some suggest that Thomas Pound was a die-hard Orangist, others that his plans were for mercenary, piratical purposes. I'm going to try to balance the three moving forward and add in a dash of the myth with what we can verify as fact. The facts of Thomas Pound's story are a little wanting. There's an outline there, sure, but it comes from the people who encountered Thomas Pound on the high seas. A lot of the drama is lost. But if we look instead to a book like The Pirates of the New England Coast by George Francis Dow, we find a lot more color. Dow writes, quote, In front of the South Station in Boston, there is an intersection of wide streets known as Dewey Square. In 1689, the space was a tidewater, and into it projected Bull's Wharf. On shore, near the head of the wharf, was a tavern with a swinging sign in front displaying on either side a beefy-looking animal that was labeled the Bull. At about eleven o'clock on the night of Thursday, August 8, 1689, Six men and a boy came down to the water's edge, not far from the tavern, and went on board a two-masted, half-decked fishing boat, of the type known at the time as a Bermuda's boat, and hoisting sails soon disappeared down the harbor in the direction of the castle. The leader of the party was Thomas Pound of the frigate Rose. End quote. Now this book is not a source to be trusted as hard scientific fact, not much of what he said there could be verified, but it really does implant an image in your mind, doesn't it? If we combine something like that with the timing, we can imagine a scene inside the bull, of men sitting around a table with mugs of ale, or likely of cider, and talking politics. Maybe they decided upon a course of action to aid one of the two factions in Ireland, as many other ships were doing. Maybe they had a lead on a privateering commission somewhere in the British Isles. Or maybe they were saying, to hell with all of this, let's go down to Jamaica where we can drown in wine, women, and Spanish plunder. When we get to all the verifiable stuff, we can say that Thomas Pound and his companions were on board a ship owned by a New England fisherman named Thomas Hawkins. They'd hired Hawkins for a ride to Nantasket, but come the morning of their second day at sea, Pound informed Hawkins that they'd changed their mind. 
Instead of writing to Nantasket, they wanted to do some fishing. I'll quote George Dow again. He says, quote, When near Lovell's Island, the sounds of men launching a boat were heard, and one of Pound's men at once said, There they are. And soon after, a small boat with five men in it came alongside and boarded Hawkins' boat. These men were armed, and Pound and one of his men, Richard Griffin, a gunsmith, also had brought guns. Pound now took command and ordered the fish casks thrown overboard and directed that an easterly course be made. This soon carried the boat into deep water beyond the Brewster Islands at the entrance to the harbor. He told Hawkins that he and his men had agreed to take the first vessel they met and proceed her to the West Indies to prey on the French. End quote. Again, some of this comes from testimony made by men who were on the ship and others, but some of it doesn't. As far as I can tell, some of this is merely Dow's imagination. In a bid to retain possession of his ship, Thomas Hawkins agreed to join the men and act as a pilot. Their first encounter with another ship was innocuous, but it did raise some eyebrows. I've often heard this called a failure, but I don't think there was any intent to engage in piracy here. They encountered a fishing sloop, and Hawkins pulled his ship up near the sloop, but he did so at an odd angle. He never came up alongside her. Hawkins asked the captain of the sloop to sell them some fish and water, and he did so, but the captain of the sloop noted, quote, Ten or twelve men who seemed to be keeping out of sight, and abaft a man whose body was out of sight was seen to peer at the fishermen, and then quickly drew back. So Captain Prince asked Hawkins where he was bound, and he replied to Billingsgate, and when asked how he had come to be so far to the northward, Hawkins replied, It's all one to me. End quote. Upon reaching his destination in Boston, the fishing sloop captain went immediately to the governor's office. He reported the strange activities. Now that captain didn't know who any of these men were, but I have heard it said that the governor of Massachusetts tried to track down Captain Thomas Pound. He wanted him to take the Mary out and hunt these suspicious characters down. Of course, they never found Thomas Pound, but this really wasn't a priority at the time. Their next encounter on the high seas was more like it. The pirates seemed to have gathered a few more men on their voyage before meeting with the Ketch Mary near what's called Halfway Rock. The captain of the Mary, Helene Chard, noted some forty men on the vessel. I should note that this ship was owned by Philip English out of Salem. In three years' time, Philip and his wife Mary English would be on trial for witchcraft in the Salem Witch Trials. The pirates captured that catch, an upgrade to their current vessel, and filled her with men and guns and water. Captain Chard informed the authorities, though, that they only had two gallons of powder. That's not much. He also recognized two of the men. There was Thomas Hawkins himself, and there was a crewman identified only as, quote, a limping privateer named Johnson. That captain also informed the authorities there in Salem that Hawkins intended to sail south and, quote, plague the French. Now, there's a lot of conversation of sailing south to attack the French here. 
but this contradicts what other men had to say later on. Someone is lying, but I can't quite sift through all of it. Because, as a lie, it makes sense from every angle. If these men were planning to sail for the West Indies and engage in open piracy, it might sound good to the members of the court if you said you were going to Europe to sail in defense of the king. Or, conversely, if you were sailing for Ireland to join up with the Jacobite forces under King James, you might say you were sailing to plague the French in the West Indies as a legal privateer in the war. Any way you slice it, we're honest, patriotic, God-fearing Englishmen, and I won't have you sully our honor with this slander. Once that catch was under their control, the pirates put Captain Chard and his men on board their own to sail for home. There were two exceptions to this, however. The pirates took the ship's doctor and a ship's boy who spoke French to translate. About a week later, that ship's doctor arrived in Falmouth, Maine, at the gates of that very same fort which had just mutinied a few months prior. Captain Pound and his ship were nowhere to be seen, and the doctor had this harrowing tale of capture and torture at the hands of the nefarious pirates. The commander of the garrison there took him in and fed him, and gave him a tot of rum. However, he noted that the doctor was acting strangely. He was talking to the soldiers in an oddly affable manner for a man who had just been through so much. So the commander ordered two men to keep watch outside his quarters that night. Come morning, though, the doctor was nowhere to be seen at the garrison. Nor were the two sentries set to guard him, nor were about a dozen other men. Add to that, there was a catch down the hill in the harbor. The garrison commander sent out a canoe to demand that they return his men, but he saw there none other than Thomas Pound. The garrison commander at Falmouth, Maine, very much knew who Thomas Pound was. They knew each other personally. They were both military leaders of the New England Dominion, remember? And Captain Pound, when the men were demanded to return, laughed in his face. Instead, the pirates went ashore. They took a calf, they took two sheep, and they took several barrels of powder and a few more guns. I like to imagine that Captain Pound knew many of the men that joined him. He knew about the situation at the garrison, the rough treatment that these militiamen underwent, and realized that it would be prime recruiting ground for his pirate crew. This garrison, though, was an important military outpost for the English in Maine. In the war that was brewing, it was going to serve as the very first line of defense that the English had against French and Indian attacks from Canada. And in the very first attack, it would fall amazingly quickly. Now, this has been blamed on Thomas Pound, and, yeah, he might have had a couple dozen of her soldiers on his pirate ship, but the garrison was already so poorly managed that they had mutiny after mutiny well before Pound arrived. It's likely they would have capitulated anyway. However, that's where we're going to leave Thomas Pound this week. Now, with a catch of reasonable size, full stores of powder and guns, and plenty of food and men to engage in a reign of terror across the New England coast for the next several months. 
Next time we're going to finish the saga of Thomas Pound before the outbreak of King William's War. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight